Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. We've got an all-women show. I'm here, Effa Clifford's here, and later we're going to have Mary Dalmo. But we've got lots of guys in our books too that we'll be talking about. But, you know, when you meet a new group of people, they don't know you, you don't know them. You can be who you want to be, but what if that's not really who you are? What if the truth catches up? Well, this is um, Eva Clifford's book, uh, All Those Perfect Strangers. That's what it's all about. So welcome, Eva. Welcome to 3CR. Lovely to be here. Where does your character, Penelope Shepherd, meet these perfect strangers? Well, she meets these perfect strangers at her first year university. Um, she has travelled to um, from her country town to a... Uh, bigger town or city campus and uh, she is delighted that's one of the reasons that she um, moved she came from a town where everyone knew her Mm. in fact she was infamous to go to a place where no one knew her and that was her goal now with this uh, life in uni dorms there's the usual complaints about the quality of the food but there's no mention of mobile phones in this in fact there's one talk about a cassette tape reel that comes out. So when have you set the book? So it's set in 1990. So it's in the land of Walkmans of if you wanted to phone home, you waited at the public telephones (laughs) along with everyone else with all your coins. And, uh, you know, you could go for quite some time without seeing a television even in those days. There'd be like, you know, joint televisions maybe down in dining hall. But if you didn't Mm. go... Uh, check it out, you could go with sort of news of the outside world, you know, with no news for quite some time. So with no Facebook, no Googling, there's an inability to check up on people. So you really had to believe what people told you. (laughs) Absolutely. I think um, exactly in those times, it's much more on face value. I think and part of the issue of my book is the identity and who people are really mm. as opposed to the facade that they put on. I think, I mean, to some extent it's the exact same problem today but the methods by which you would do that is totally different. In fact, I was reading, you know, the countless millions of fake Facebook sites. Mm. So you'd have to, you could create, curate a whole false past for yourself but it would sort of have to be out there whereas in, no. in 1990 you could just hide it. Sure could. Well, you mentioned that she came from a small town and we know about small towns, there's gossip and especially around her there's scandal and tragedy. And the only one at the university who knows this about Penelope is Marcus. Who's he? So Marcus is, uh, he's new himself and perhaps um, I might just take a step back and say that to have this sort of setting was exactly what I wanted. I had been thinking a long time about uh, structuring and crime novel structure in particular. And what had struck me in crime novels, and it's a common story structure, is the idea of your protagonist being on a journey, going to a strange place, meeting strange people, overcoming obstacles, and then returning home knowing a bit about themselves. Mm. I mean, it's the odyssey, it's 
Brideshead Revisited, it's The Hobbit, it's, you know, so it's informed so many books. It's particularly useful in crime books, but I wondered if you could write a crime book that actually took it that step further where everybody is a stranger. So you're not breaking into a little tight-knit community. Everybody is coming into this place all at once and Marcus is no different. Marcus is the head of Penn's College where she has been awarded a bursary mm. by him in particular and he has his own murky past that he's running from as well. A quote from the book. This is from Marcus. I can see that you're a survivor, a trait I value highly. So easy to play the victim, so much harder to make a comeback. So how is Penn telling this story? Well, Penn's telling the story. She's had to she's been forced to return to her country town and she um is undertaking a legal action against the university for, for the terrible events that occur to her there. Part of that legal action is that they require some proof that she's suffered from uh, trauma, pain and suffering, etc. And so they, um, she has to return to a psychiatrist that she'd been seeing earlier. And Penn has been told by the psychiatrist, who in a sense is raising doubts about Penn's version of events, that he would like her to write things down in a diary that... And she doesn't actually need to show him the diary, but then they would then discuss, she would read it out to him in her sessions and then they would discuss some of the issues involved. And so sprinkled throughout the story of Penn at university is sessions in the uh, with her psychiatrist who then goes through and talks about the events that the reader will have just read. Mm. So we, we, we have questions, you know, who will want to read this diary? Is she telling the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? Is she writing it for herself or for the ultimate reader? And this is where I'd like uh, Eva Clifford to read the very first words that uh, Penn Shepherd writes in her diary. This is about three deaths. Actually more if you go back far enough. I say deaths, but perhaps all of them are murders. It's a grey area. Murder, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. So let's just call them deaths and say I was involved. This story could be told a hundred different ways. Mm, It could be. And all of these perfect strangers that we're about to meet at uni, they probably have a different ring on it too. Oh, absolutely. I wanted that idea that if another character in the book told you the story, it could sound very different. Well, first of all, there's Toby. Now, that's the first person that... um Penn actually meets. He's he's in the welcoming committee, he's a bit older and well he's got his secrets but he's out there with his secrets. Asian and gay. Now we're thinking 1990s. Mm, yes that's right, a, a very different time, a, a brave move to be um, at a smaller campus, like this isn't a large city, this isn't Melbourne or Sydney but I mean this is the time, you know, AIDS is still a big issue, people are dying from AIDS. Uh, in Sydney there's you know, it was a series of gay bashing deaths mm. that really didn't get investigated at all by the police. Still illegal. Yeah, and so it is, um, it's a very different time, but he has sort of em- embraced who he is and is putting it out there on show. Mm. So quite different from a lot of the other characters who are hiding. So the other person he meets is, Le- uh, she meets is Lisa, who once again is a little bit older and Lisa is, is pro-female with great organisational strengths. Now she's putting a petition together for better security and lighting. Why is she doing that? Well, in my book, um, there's a, 
a series of attacks have started to occur. They occur, occur off the page first and then they come sort of roaring mm. in um, about a third of the way into the book and become quite an important um, plot point. But I also wanted to reference, I think, the 1990s where, I mean, this was a, a, a very common issue on all campuses and it's quite interesting to see it's coming back as an issue again because I don't think anything's changed about security university. My university is unnamed and I've been quite interested with readers coming up and trying to guess if it was their oh. university because all of them can point to places and their university where you would never have walked around at night as a woman without something bad sort of happening to you and that's still, you know, occurring now. So, um, uh, so Lisa, these sort of petitions were very mm. common asking for greater security um, with attacks on campus and in fact the attack on campus the screwdriver um, man, they call him, was actually a real attack on my campus in my first year oh. of a guy with a screwdriver um, who did several attacks on my campus. Well, I hope... Look, I'm going to get uh, Eva Clifford to read again from her book All These Perfect Strangers about such an attack on page 112. She suddenly materialised in the spotlight from the nearest street lamp. She was a ghostly pale figure, her skin, hair and clothes bleached of colour from the overhead light. But turning towards us, she began to change, from white to red. Blood was running down her cheek, neck and onto her clothes. She put her hands out and I stared at her face and her clotted blonde hair glued to the skin. A tight curl of flesh hung limp below the cut on the side of her head, a hole where her ear should be. The girl looked at us, opened up her mouth and screamed so loudly that when she collapsed, the noise still hung in the air around us. Oh. Well, back at uni, of course, she comes from a different dorm and all the dorms are competitive one between the other and they organise games. Well, this was not Murder in the Dark how it was expected <laughs> to be played. But there is a, a chap that Penn first meets. It's Quiet Michael. Uh, he's picked on, he's bullied, and she has to kiss him for a dare. And then... Uh, in contrast to Quiet Michael, there's uh, Rebecca, who's forthright, perhaps bossy. Her parents are overseas ambassadors. And all of their doings make it into the diary. And another thing, it's a feeling from um, Penn that makes it into the diary, and it's a feeling about the beautiful Rogan. He pays attention to her, even though she has this nasty scar, but we're left to wonder, is his beauty only skin deep? <laughs> and in contrast to him, we have Jode, big, scary and nasty. Now, if, if you can't get a physical attraction, a feeling for how nasty he was, listen to some of the things he said. I'm not going to be beaten by any loud mouth bitch or faggot. And another wonderful comment, um, comment by Jode, there would be no rape if you chicks put out more. I didn't think, oh, golly, <laughs> you're not going to like that character. No, you're not meant to, no. Well, in the, in the six months when Pen Penelope Shepherd's at uni, three of these perfect strangers are dead. <sighs> so, poor um, Pen, where should she feel safe? Should she feel safe back at home with her mother? Well, perhaps this is where Penn's difficulty actually stems from, is that home is um, no safer and, in fact, probably considerably more dangerous um, than university was what she was trying to escape um, 
Penn's mother is a single parent and it's fair to say her taste in men probably leaves a lot to be desired. Oh, look, um, I like um, F. Clifford's writing. So there's another bit we're going to hear and this is about the, uh, Penn's mother's new boyfriend, Terry. Mm, and perhaps if just preface this, they've had their... Her mum has just decided that Terry's going to move in with them and they're having their first dinner together mm. as a family. Aren't you going to eat that, he asks, pointing to my untouched bowl. His leg brushes up against mine under the table. I've had enough. I swing my legs out of reach and as I start standing up, he grabs my arm. His smile is wide and wet with a meaty tongue and a sharp yellow teeth. Think you're so much better than the rest of us with your lawyer and your shrink. Writing about us in that blue book of yours, full of all your secrets. Maybe I should read it one day. He makes a panting kind of laugh. I can't tell if this is supposed to be a threat or a come on. Keeping my voice even, I say, let go of me. His hand slowly tightens as he tries to drag me towards him. I force myself to look straight into his eyes, dark and unreadable, and say, the last person who tried something like this is dead. He loosens his grip and I pull my hand away. Pretending I'm fine, I stand up, grab my bowl and scrape it out into the bin, then place it in the sink. The sound fills the kitchen as he sits there saying nothing. My scalp prickles from his eyes watching me. As I leave the kitchen, Mum comes bustling back in, smelling suspiciously of mint and saying it's my turn for the washing up. (laughs) Um, In the country, prior to all of this, Penn's best friend Tracy has warned uh, Tracy about some of her mum's boyfriends and even come over and help fit a, fit a lock on her bedroom door. Oh, it's not... <laughs> OK, so the authority figures, you know, we know that Penn's not keen on police, but uh, the one we do like, Marcus, gets arrested in the first quarter of the book. And we think, oh, no... Not him. (laughs) Very clever, very clever. So we've got uh, motorbike gangs doing security, um, drugs, and I like this because 1990, you really had to explain to the reader what uh, Riffinol was. (laughs) Riffinol, yes, that's exactly right. Yes, and it'd be in the time before, I mean, Riffinol then got a protective... um, coating on it in order to uh, a dye that would then turn drinks blue but this is actually in the time before that before it was um, recognized and I mean there still is actually some debate about it um, that it was a, it seems to be that you know the main date rape drug of choice but w- whether it's um, given a greater um, perhaps it's not used as commonly as thought um, but it certainly was um, became infamous very soon afterwards. The aspect also is about money. It, it bleaches through a lot of things. You know, universities are always after funding and there's we've got <clears throat> Marcus who's sort of done up the office. We've got Brian, the vice-chancellor, who, you know, we don't know what his secret is, but nobody likes him. He's so vicious. <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, so there's the uni money. It's it's how students can make pocket money, mm. which brings in easy drug deals and things like this. And we've got in contra uh, um, the, the loan sharks lending farmers money back in the oh yes, yeah. that's right yeah yeah. Yep. And I think the worst one was um, 
Penn's mother saying, well, why don't you sell your story? You know, you, you, you'll get an, a, a nice makeover and they might let you keep the outfit. <laughs> That's exactly right. I mean, I think it's a time, like it's quite different. Uh, I wanted to document some things. So, say for example, just something as simple as the car park. The car park on campus is very different now to what it was then. And in those days, it was quite rare for a student to have a car. And if you did have a car, it was a it was a, a bomb. And if you didn't have like some car that was looking like it was about to give up the ghost, you know, that really stood out, especially on my campus in the 1990s. Whereas now, of course, I mean, there's a whole range of reasons why it's, it's different. But, you know... Um, far more difficult to park on campus because so many more people would have a car to um, get to and from. I mean, it'd be probably got to do with the age of the students, um, you know, more mature age students going and going back. That's been an increasing thing. But I think even just, you know, your average student is far more likely to have a car. Mm. So it, it and, and obviously to have a car, you need a lot more money. So I think th- there was a real difference between... Um, uh, probably the ready cash that you had in 1990s compared to now, I think. Yeah. The core of the book, Friendship, Secrets and Murder. Now, would you call this book, and the book we're talking about is All These Perfect Strangers and author Eva Clifford, would you call it a psychological thriller or a crime novel? Well, I, I mean, those things are always quite hard, actually, to decide because it is marketing and about where you end up mm. really in a, in a bookshop um, I probably have a broader notion of crime. Uh, I mean, probably in, in sort of marketing terms, it's a psychological thriller. But for me, they're all crime books. I think, I mean, there, there's all sorts of different crime books. I would have a very broad broad definition of crime. Um, I think some books are just that pure adrenaline rush of trying to work out the problem, trying to solve the crime, being the armchair detective and just work out who the murderer is. And then there's books, and probably my book would fall a little bit more into this, where crime's there but it's a bit of a Trojan horse to then talk about a whole range of other issues as well. So I wanted a book that was satisfying and a page-turner but then also developed you know, ideas about identity, about keeping secrets and lies, about who has power, um, about you know, moral guilt and legal guilt. Ah, uh, yeah, moral, and it, morally right and legally wrong. <laughs> that's exactly right. Or, or the reverse. You can get legally be fine, but morally you bear some mm. responsibility to what's happened. And so I wanted, in a sense, to present a series of facts about what has occurred, but hopefully to allow enough grey areas to invite the reader in to decide which version of events did they prefer and who did they hold responsible. So it was one where one reader could see something totally different from another. Uh, one might go for a very strict reading about who actually occurred, who actually committed the crimes and others might see the, the reasons why they did. There were other people that um, were in play. Another quote from um, uh, Eva's Clifford's book, a broken clock gets to be right twice a day. <laughs> Oh, look. And, of course, you quote some of the other crime writers that have been in on this program. Anna George came in with her. Oh, yeah. oh what came before? That was that was quite scary. This is sort of set in suburban Melbourne. Absolutely. And, oh. and then Angela Savage has been in on the program. Oh, yeah. And she's she's uh, the Dying Beach. Where was that set? That was set in Thailand. Yeah, that's right. In fact, both of those, uh, both Angela and Anna will be having, should be having new books out this year. Oh. And I've 
been lucky enough to um, see Anna's in an earlier draft and it's a corker and I've talked to Angela about hers. I don't think her one's a strict crime one but it's a very interesting one dealing with a big social issue that I'll be fascinated to read. Okay. Well, now talking about reading and writing, I'm going to speak with Mary Delmo. Mary, welcome to the program. Hello, Jen. Oh, look, Mary Delmo, uh, just let me introduce you to our listeners. I don't think you really need that much introduction, though, do you? <laughs> Mary Delmo is Reader's Feast. Thank you, Jen. 40 years next year in the book trade. So, <laughs> 40 years in the book trade, Mary. Yes. Golly, you've read a lot, haven't you? <laughs> Just a bit, and a lot of crime fiction over those years. <laughs> uh, well, we're going to get to that later, but first of all, I want you to explain to us where what's happened to Reader's Feast in its third stage. Well, yes, we've been on the move. We're now um, in the city and at the Abbotsford Convent, both areas where a lot of our customers reside or work or play, and it's worked really well. I must say people are really pleased with us. We're on William Street near the corner of Burke and on weekends we have a lovely little spot at the Abbotsford Convent every Saturday and Sunday. Okay, so Abbotsford is Saturday and Sunday. I think mm. that makes sense, doesn't it? Yes, and I, uh, I have a long association with that convent. Is in the 60s, myself and my six siblings would run around while the relatives were being visited. <laughs> so oh. The association. And, of course, we started some of our festivals there many years ago. Well, let's jump straight to that one. Are we going to have a crime and justice seminar this year? Absolutely. We're celebrating, in fact, Jan, 10 years. So that was something I came up with as a personal thank you to myself for 30 years in the book trade. So it's the 10th anniversary this year. It's the only festival of its kind in the world and it melds crime fiction with social justice, human rights, politics. And it's, for me, all about the way society works and having a discussion about that. And that's what I love about crime fiction, that it reflects society. Mary Delmo, do you have a personal feel about the difference between crime novels and psychological thrillers, or domestic noirs, as they're called? Yeah, I, um, I'm a traditionalist in terms of the crime fiction genre being mostly about the murder mystery and the way human frailties are displayed through that but certainly having read some more recent Australian releases like Emma Vistrick and others I'm seeing that that genre is being expanded now I'm not yet at the point where I think true crime as such is part of that umbrella for me but certainly that what constitutes crime fiction has changed over my time in the trade. 40 years. And look, I know some of the people who have worked with you haven't been with you quite that long, but there must be some that close to 20 years. Well, the average, is, yeah, the average is 25 years, but oh, three of us started together in about 1978. <laughs> so I have 16 people with me and we're, we're really another family and we're all passionate about books. And as one brother said to me once, what else would you all do? <laughs> so that's, that's true. Well, hopefully you're not going to have to pack up boxes of books uh, again. You know, you're there for a long time. But, you know, your neighbours must be missing you. Kay Craddock there at Athenaeum, uh, oh, the Athenaeum Library and also Kay Craddock in Antiquarian Books. Yes. They'd, they'd be um, sorry to see you go. Absolutely, because we, I again started an alliance called the Reader's Wharf and within that, the hands in print, but that lives on. And we have great friends and great support from the Melbourne Athenaeum Library. In fact, we hosted an event there last week with the Irish singer, Luca Bloom. So our connections specifically, or particularly with the Athenaeum Library will continue. It's a lovely place to hold events. 
and I'm sure they'll take part in our festival again this year with us. Now, I must say that I thoroughly enjoyed some of the big events you put on at George's. The, um, the Just the George's event brought people out of the woodwork who came and shopped there and uh, had worked there. Now, this is, oh, this must be about five years ago you put that event on. Yes, 650 people came <laughs> along. Uh, and look, there's, it, it's almost as if it has um, been held in time for a lot of people. They... They absolutely adore that time in Melbourne, that store. But life has moved on and it's not the best location. It wasn't for us in terms of general foot traffic, in terms of being up a hill. Um, and with what's planned for the tunnel, etc. you know, I could see coming down the track, it would have been even more difficult to get people to mm. that part of town. Whereas this area, William and Burke, I'm really surprised at how... It has shifted. You know, I do think the centre of Melbourne is shifting somewhat. And so while I expected there to be office workers and the legal precinct, what I didn't expect were all the apartments around here and the hotels. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so it's very different in a positive way to my perception of this end of town. Just once again, tell us where you are. We're on the corner of Burke and William. We're in fact three doors down from the corner on William Street in the St James building. A lot of people are telling me they remember it as the AMP building from oh. many years ago. I in fact did my field work in librarianship here in 1978. <laughs> <laughs> so I keep going back to these places, the convent here. <laughs> yes, life is just a circle, isn't it? <laughs> it is really, yes. <laughs> well, Mary Delmer, lovely to chat with you again and may read us feast in its new anchor new spot just live on and on and on so we'll catch you down there at um, St James building near at the corner of Burke and Williams or at Abbotsford on the weekend but before I go I must tell you that my author today Aoife Clifford went to your last climb uh, crime and um, uh, justice seminar what did you see Uh, look I saw quite a few events Emma um, Viskic did that um, Mary just mentioned Um, Gary Disher, who was fantastic, and um, also Mark Tedeschi. That was the first time I'd seen him, and he spoke without any notes for about an hour and kept everyone spellbound. He was fantastic. He absolutely did, Eva. And, and this is um, the, the call-out I make to local publishers, and it has been hard for us to get them to get behind this festival. It's been easier to get people like Ian Rankin to understand the uniqueness of it. So... We really have done this all on our own for the 10 years and being a commercial enterprise, we get no funding, no grants. So it, is, it would be terrific if the local publishing industry really understood the value of it and got behind it. And in 10 years, there's no better time for them to do that. I think so too. I'm with you. Well, Mary Delmo for Reader's Feast, thank you very much for coming on to the program. And, um, of course, my, my author today, Aoife Clifford, with all those perfect strangers, published by Simon & Schuster. Thank you. Thanks, Jen.